passion for God and compassion for our neighbor, reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. So get out your Bibles, uh, turn to Mark chapter 2. We have just completed our Christmas series where we worked our way through some select passages in the book of Ephesians. So we're going to return to the book of Mark, which is where we were at in November when we paused that for our Christmas series. And the Gospel of Mark is a really, actually, very cool book because it sort of allows us to experience what life was like when people were with Jesus, when Jesus was here on earth. The neat part about this gospel is that while John Mark, who wrote this gospel, was not personally present with Christ while he walked on earth, John Mark was a very close companion of the apostle Peter. And Peter was like as, about as close as you can get to Jesus when he walked here on this earth. And so as Mark writes his gospel, it sort of has this ring to it of a firsthand eyewitness account. And it makes us feel like we were almost there and experiencing the life with Jesus and his disciples. Now, Mark has been very unashamed of what he wants us to know about Jesus Christ and who he is. Beginning right off the bat in Mark chapter 1, verse 1, he just says, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He's not mincing any words about Jesus' identity. In fact, as we got into just these first two chapters, again and again, he reveals Christ's identity. For instance, at his baptism, Remember how the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus, but then there was a voice of God the Father from heaven that said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. I mean, even the demons were into like giving the true identity of Jesus. I mean, the demon at one point cries out, this is the Holy One of God revealing Jesus' identity. So in two chapters, we've seen again and again the true identity of Jesus Christ, that he is more than just a man. He is the very Son of God. But Mark wasn't just want us to know about Jesus' identity. He's also very concerned for us to know about Jesus' authority. Because we've seen how Jesus has the authority to handle the toughest temptations that Satan can push his way. Jesus had authority over disease. Jesus displayed authority over demons. Jesus in Mark has already displayed authority to forgive sin. I mean, Jesus has all the authority and all the power necessary as the Son of God to push back the effects of sin in this world. As we dive back into the book of Mark, and we're on Mark chapter 2, verse 23 what we find is a little bit more information about the authority of Jesus. In fact, in this passage, we're going to learn that Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath, or Jesus has authority over the Sabbath. Now, to you and me in modern-day America, that doesn't sound too impressive. <laughs> doesn't sound like much of a big deal. But in the first century... 
Do the Pharisees and Jews that Jesus was rubbing shoulders with on a daily basis, this is a huge claim. To them, it is a particularly irritating claim that Jesus would dare to say he is Lord over the Sabbath. See, the Sabbath, as the Jews would think of it, is originated in God himself. I mean, the Sabbath begins, if you were, in Genesis chapter 2. God creates everything in six days, but then on the seventh day, it was God who rested. So the Sabbath is originated in creation. And then when God takes and he forms his own people, and he pulls them out of Egypt, and he gives them his laws at Sinai in Exodus chapter 20, what was the fourth commandment? To keep the Sabbath day and to keep it holy. So for Jesus to say, I'm Lord of the Sabbath, this is an undeniable claim to be God. It's an undeniable claim to be the one who has authority in creation and the one who formed God's people. Now, there are only two options at this point. Either Jesus is God, as he claims to be, and has authority over the Sabbath, or he's a complete nutcase, and he should be taken out with the evening trash. Those are the only two options. Now, what we're going to do as we dive in at verse 23 of the second chapter is we're going to actually read two stories that are coming back-to-back in the Gospel of Mark that talk about Jesus and his authority over the Sabbath. Incidentally, we're going to take these stories together because they're put together in Mark, but they're also put together in Matthew and in Luke. Both tell these same stories, and they put them side-by-side, back-to-back. So that's why we're going to look at them together. Now go ahead and take out your Bibles and uh, have make sure they're open to Mark chapter 2, verse 23. Stand out of reverence for the Word of God. I'm going to read all the way through chapter 3, verse 6. Follow along with your eyes and your copy of God's Word. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields. And as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. They watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Now is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? 
But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at the hardness of heart. He said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. That ends the reading of God's word and you may be seated. Now, the big picture of both of these small stories is about the authority of Jesus, in particular, over the Sabbath day itself. But we're going to take these stories individually, and we're going to pull some a little practical application uh, out of the stories individually. So the first point we're going to look at is this. The Sabbath was created to be a gift and not a burden. The Sabbath was created to be a gift and not a burden. And if we're going to understand, by the way, the significance of these stories in the Gospel of Mark, I need to give you a little background about why the Jews were so incredibly fanatical about keeping the Sabbath and how they had actually bolted on around the biblical principles of the Sabbath all kinds of extra principles that they had written up on their own. See, when it comes to the Sabbath and the Old Testament and what God says about it, it was actually rather simple. God had not given a ton of laws about the Sabbath. Pretty much it was to be a day of rest and refreshment from your work, a day to be refreshed physically, and a day to be refreshed in your relationship with God. It was given to man as a gift from God. Other people work seven days a week. God's people actually were intended to work six, rest and be refreshed in one. But the Pharisees, they didn't like this flexibility that God had left in the Old Testament where he had not specified with great exact detail about what was and wasn't allowed on the Sabbath. Now, God had given some of those details, obviously, but he was relatively flexible. So what the Pharisees had done, begun to do is they started bolting on the side of the Bible where it was uh, their own traditions, their own rules about what was and was not allowed on the Sabbath day. Now, as modern Americans, we are relatively ignorant about these Jewish traditions that were alive and well in the time of Jesus. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about them and so you understand what they were. The easiest way for you to, me to describe them is to tell you about what it says about them in a book by Alfred Adershein. His book is called The Life and Times of Jesus. And what he did is he went to the Talmud. Now, the Talmud was actually not written at the time of Jesus. It was written after the time of Jesus. But what the book did is it codified what was the written or what was the oral law that was common at the time of Jesus. So it gives us a little window to be able to look back into what were the rules about the Sabbath that everybody felt like they had to abide by that were non-biblical rules that the Jews and the Pharisees had bolted on to the text. So I'm going to give you some of these. And these I think you'll find a little bit amusing. For instance, on a Sabbath day, you are not allowed to walk more than 1,999 steps from your home. Now, to me, it sounds like a lot of work to start counting your steps. But that's what they said. 
But when you have all these kind of legalistic minutiae, then what you, people start to do is they try to find exceptions to that. Here's one of the exceptions they said. Now, you can walk 1,999 steps from your home and no further, or that would be considered work. But if before the Sabbath you happen to put food someplace you're walking by, you could walk to that food, eat that food, that would be considered a new home, and then you could walk another 1,999 steps. Or if you're in the city where you're not supposed to walk apart from your home, if you put down boards connecting your home and another home or put a rope between the two homes that connected the homes and therefore made them one home, and so you didn't have to count your steps even though you walked down the, the street. Let me give you a couple other things that they had in that day. You couldn't lift anything of any weight except for something that was less than the weight of a dried fig. You lifted something more than a dried fig, you were doing work. You could throw something with your one hand, but you had to catch it in the same hand. That wasn't work. But if you caught it in the opposite hand, that was considered work and, and was illegal. Now, if you were uh, reaching for some food and you had grabbed some food and the Sabbath had just happened... So Sabbath, by the way, was sundown on Friday all the way through sundown on Saturday. You've realized that you have food in your hand and the sun is officially down now. You know what you have to do? Just drop the food, leave it on the floor, and don't you dare eat it or clean it up for 24 hours. If you were to do that, it would be considered work. Now, nothing could be bought. Nothing could be sold. If you uh, say you were a tailor or you were a student, you couldn't carry anything that was associated with your work. You couldn't carry even a needle, or you're violating the Sabbath because you were having some of your tools with you. If you were a student, you couldn't have a book with you on the Sabbath because it was heavier than a dried fig, and it would be associated with your work. You also were not allowed to make a fire on the Sabbath. So if it was a really, really cold day, guess what? Buckle up, hold on tight, because making a fire would be considered work. You couldn't blow out a candle on a Sabbath, because that would be considered work. If you had a dirt floor, you couldn't take and drag your chair across the dirt floor, because the leg on the chair would create a furrow and be akin to plowing, <laughs> and that they considered work. Women. You have to love what the Sabbath is like because you can't look in a mirror on the Sabbath. You know why they would say you, women can't look in the mirror? It's because if they saw a gray hair, they'd be tempted to pluck it out. And that would be considered work. And ladies, on the Sabbath, you cannot wear jewelry according to the Pharisees. You know why? Because it'd be heavier than a dried fig. And you're not allowed to carry it and be considered doing work. Now, as I was continuing to read and study this, <laughs> I finally felt good when it says you're allowed to write two letters on the Sabbath. And I thought, well, this is good. You can catch up on your letter writing to people and, you know, your correspondence. And then I realized they don't mean like letters you're writing to people. They were talking alphabetic letters. You could only write the letter A and the letter B, and to write any more would be considered work. Now, by the way, none of this is in the Bible any place. 
These are all just man-made rules and regulations that the Pharisees have bolted onto the side of the Bible to try and make all kinds of definitions of work to force people to honor God by not working on the Sabbath. And, you know, the Sabbath was originally given to be a blessing. It was given to be a time of refreshment. And here it's become a burden in fact, the Sabbath, instead of being the best day of the week, at the time of Jesus, has become the most dreaded day of the week. Now, now that we understand the culture of the Pharisees and the culture of the Sabbath in Jesus' day, this gives us the necessary backdrop for us to be able to read and study these passages and why Jesus well, actually has none of this and doesn't want to obey any of these rules. It starts out this way. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields. And as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. Well, we know it's on the Sabbath, and they're going through grain fields. Well, I'll tell you what. My guess is Jesus has gone way beyond 1,999 steps. He's not even counting his steps because this is ludicrous. Now, what's going on is uh, in that day, there were, there were some highways, but there were very few highways. And the common way for people to travel from one city to another city was to walk through the fields that separated the cities. Most likely, this is taking place between the months of April and August, because that was harvest time when there would be grain in the fields. Uh, most likely, it's either wheat or barley, which are being grown in that area at this time. The fields were lined up in strips, so that way people would walk down between the strips of the fields with, a, with the grain on either side of them. And what you may think at first is, why would the Pharisees be so upset that Jesus and his disciples were taking some of the grain? Ah, they're stealing. That's it. They're taking somebody else's crop. Actually not. That's not what they're upset about. Because actually in the Old Testament, God had made provision which allowed people who were traveling to be able to take some of that crop on their, their journey. I put the verse here into your outline for you. It's Deuteronomy 23, 25. If you go into your neighbor's standing grain... You may pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not put a sickle to your neighbor's standing grain. So this is God's blessing for the weary traveler is what it is. There are no cases out there. There are no come and goes for people. You are not in the city where there is food that you can buy. You are out going between cities in the fields, you are tired, you would like a snack. You know what God says you can do? You can grab some of the grain, and you can eat some of the grain to provide some refreshment. But the Pharisees would have none of that. Rather than being blessed by some refreshment, they say, you know what? How dare they take some of that grain? Because you know what? To get it, they're working when they grab it with their hands. They're harvesting. 
when they rub it between their hands, they're winnowing. And when they blow away the chaff, they're also working. You see, they are violating the Sabbath. Well, in the parallel passage, uh, I think it's actually Mark, or excuse me, Matthew chapter 12, it tells us why the disciples were uh, taking a few heads of grain and, and eating them as they walked. It's real simple. They're hungry. They're hungry. They're tired and hungry and weary from the walk and weary from the week. But you notice how the Pharisees would have this, and this is the key piece in our study this morning. The Pharisees would rather people keep their man-made rules and be hungry and suffer, where Jesus would rather have compassion on those who are hungry and not keep these man-made rules. And what happens here, Jesus uh, provide precedent as to why they're allowed to eat this grain. He tells them a story, and it's from actually the Old Testament. And he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat and also gave it to those who were with him. When he begins and says, have you never read? By the way, that is not a compliment. That's sort of a, uh, like, Jesus cut down, because the Pharisees are the ones who have pretty much memorized the entire Old Testament. And he's like, did you forget something? Maybe you didn't read that part about uh, David. <laughs> you know, you seem like you're missing it. Now, let me explain what was going on. Um, at the situation that Jesus is referring to, it comes out of 1 Samuel chapter 21. I'm not going to read that to you in the interest of time, but I'm going to just simply summarize that for you. What was going on at that time is David was running from Saul, as he often did, because Saul was jealous of David. And as David and his companions left in a hurry, they ended up coming to a place called Nob. That's N-O-B, not K-N-O-B, by the way. And it's about one mile outside of Jerusalem. And David and his companions are hungry. They're famished. And he says to the priest, do you have any bread here? Like, we're starving. The priest is like, ah, oh, Sorry, David, I don't have anything for you. I'd love to give you something. And he pauses and thinks for a moment. Wait a minute. I think I do have some bread for you. I have the bread of the presence, or sometimes it would be called the, the holy bread. Now, what is that? In the Bible, what would happen is every week there were 12 loaves of hot bread that were put into the tabernacle on a table before the Lord. The picture of this is that God's people, the 12 tribes, were to commune with God. They were to eat with God. They were to be in fellowship with God. Just like what happens when you and a friend, you have a meal together. There's a connection. There's a relationship that takes place in that meal. And the idea is God and his people are to be in this connection, this relationship around a meal. But as you're going to guess, uh, that bread doesn't last forever. In fact, after a week, that bread wasn't nearly as nice. So it was taken out of the tabernacle, 
and fresh and new hot bread was put in. And what would happen is the bread that was taken out of God's presence was given to the priests, and they were allowed to eat it. And this priest sits there and he thinks to himself, okay, what are my options? I have David and his companions that are half starving to death. And then I have the ritual and tradition that this bread should only be given to myself and the priests. What's more important? Compassion and mercy to somebody in need or keeping a tradition and a rule? The priest is a smart guy. Compassion and mercy to somebody in need trumps the keeping of a ritual and traditional rule. And he gives David that bread. And this is what Jesus is trying to point out. Your guys are all bent out of shape, you Pharisees, that my disciples are having just a little bit of grain on the Sabbath. They're violating your man-made rule. But even in Scripture, it says you can violate a tradition, a God-given tradition, if you need to show compassion and mercy and grace to somebody in need. In fact, Jesus summarizes it this way in Mark chapter 2, verse 27. And he said to them, you see, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was intended to be a blessing. It's a gift. It's a time of refreshment physically and spiritually. It's not that men are to be slaves to the Sabbath. We're supposed to be blessed by the Sabbath and then comes the bombshell. This is the bombshell of the story. And Jesus said, So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Jesus says, You know why I can tell you what is the right thing to do on the Sabbath and what is the wrong thing to do in the Sabbath? I can tell you what's acceptable on the Sabbath because I am the one who created the Sabbath. I am the one who's in charge of the Sabbath, not you with all your extra rules and regulations. Now, if that's a huge claim. That Jesus created the Sabbath, so he's in charge of it? You put your finger in the text. What you find is that's actually true. I'll just give you one quick example. Remember the original Sabbath when God rested on the seventh day of creation. Well, God created and then God rested. But if you put your finger into the Gospel of John, who do we find out is the one that created in Genesis? Genesis chapter 1, the first three verses. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. The Word who was with God is the one who made everything. And then you continue a little bit into the Gospel of John. It says this, And he was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. Jesus is the one who made everything. And Jesus is even the one who rested on the seventh day, he created the Sabbath. So he has authority over it. 
Now, today, you notice as a church, we do not worship on the Sabbath day, because that would be the last day of the week. That's Saturday. We actually worship on the first day of the week, which is Sunday. Well, some people may wonder, how did this change take place? I've talked to a number of people who have said to me, well, you know, as the church, the church has got it all wrong. They keep worshiping on Sunday when they should be worshiping on Saturday. That was the Sabbath. But here's what you find. You trace your finger through the Bible, and it's always about the Sabbath, the Sabbath, the Sabbath. And then all of a sudden, Jesus Christ rises from the dead on what day of the week? Sunday, the first day of the week. Then Jesus appears to his disciples on a Sunday. One week later, on a Sunday, Jesus appears to his disciples again. The Holy Spirit comes on the day of Pentecost. What day is the day of Pentecost? Sunday, not Saturday. Every single recorded event in the, in the church when it's meeting in the book of Corinthians and others, what day is the church meeting? Sunday, in honor of the resurrection. G the book of Revelation says, John says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. The Lord's day is the first day of the week. So the, the book of Revelation is given to John on the first day of the week. So it's like all of a sudden, up until Jesus' resurrection, everything was about the last day of the week. And then Jesus' resurrection and everything in the Bible from then on out happens on the first day of the week. It's like Jesus changed the day of worship. And he actually has authority to do that, doesn't he? Because he is Lord of the Sabbath. He was the creator of the Sabbath. And he's actually the only one out there who has authority to change the day of worship. And that's exactly, my friends, what he did. Now let's dive into the next story. The Sabbath is the right time to help those in need. Mark chapter 3, verse 1. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. By the way, we don't know when this is taking place, given the fact these two stories are uh, right next to one another in all three Gospels. This may be a week later. Uh, this could even be the, the same Sabbath. I don't know, but they're right next to one another. And there's a man in the, the synagogue who has a withered hand. Uh, Luke, who is the doctor, who always gives us very precise details, tells us it's actually a right hand that was withered. The Greek term for withered is illustrative because it, what it means is it literally is used to describe uh, what grasses and flowers look like at the end of a growing season. You know what they all look like dried up and, and withered? That is what this man's hand looks like, or as Luke would remind us, his right hand. So if we think that the idea is here that he has a full and healthy hand that is just not maybe with full strength or power, that's not the picture. This is a hand that has had necrosis set into it. It's a hand that is crippled, that under, that is shrunken, it is probably suffering from some kind of circulation problems. It's got to the point it's just a stub. That's what this man's hand is like. Jesus knows the man's there. Of course, Jesus could have postponed the healing when he sees him in the synagogue. Could have said, sorry, 
It's not business hours. I only do healings, you know, um, Sunday through Friday. You have to, you know, schedule one, and we'll do that then. But it's the Sabbath. I don't want to violate any of the uh, commands. doesn't say that at all. Jesus knows what's going on here, and he steps into this. The second verse in this chapter says, And they watched Jesus to see whether he would, whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so they might accuse him. As you picture this, this is not a casual watching. Realize this is an intentional watching. Their eyes are drilled onto Jesus and this man, and they are just waiting he heals him on the Sabbath, we are going to get him once and for all. That's what's going on at this point. Now, you may wonder, what would be the problem with healing on the Sabbath? I mean, what kind of work would Jesus be doing? If he does seem to heal people with just simply a touch or, or a word, where's all the work? You need to understand the background of uh, the Sabbath. I mentioned to you a little bit about this, but the Talmud on the Sabbath, I believe, has 24 chapters of Sabbath regulations of things that were not allowed. One rabbi, post-Jesus, says he took two and a half years of his life to completely study and understand just one chapter on the Sabbath rules in the Talmud. So it's, a, it's like the Encyclopedia Britannica kind of thing. Now, what they said about medical things was this. If somebody was injured on the Sabbath, you could not provide restorative care to them on the Sabbath, but all you could do was prevent them from dying. Like you have a massive cut, a gaping cut. You're bleeding profusely. Oh, it's the Sabbath. Just keep pressure on it. Just hold it there. Well, can't you stitch it? Nope, got 24 more hours to roll the stitch. But you see, that's silly. But you couldn't provide restorative care. And Jesus provides great restorative care, doesn't he? When he brings healing. Now, interestingly, in Luke chapter 6, verse 8, it says, this is the parallel of, of this. It says, Jesus knew what they were thinking in their heart at this point. And here's what has Jesus so upset. They have absolutely no compassion and no care for the man himself. All they want to do is use him as a pawn to trap him and trick him. They care more about their rituals and traditions than caring for the man in desperate need. My guess is, with a shriveled and withered hand, I'm thinking he's probably in pain. I mean, it can't feel good. This man is suffering, and all they care about is their rituals. So here Jesus sets this up. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, well, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. Can you picture this? Jesus knows what they're thinking. Sees the man in the back row. Yeah, you, with the withered hand, come on up here. And he sort of comes up front reluctantly. And here's Jesus, 
Here are the religious leaders, and here's the man with the withered hand. And he just looks at him. Now you tell me, when everybody's looking, what's the right thing to do? To save a life or to kill? Provide mercy or just to ignore this? What do you, you think? And they're caught. Now in the parallel passage of this, we're in Matthew chapter 12, it gives us a little bit more details. Jesus tells a little story here. And the man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so they might accuse him? And he said to them, Which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Guys, think of this. If one of your animals fell into a pit, you would violate your Sabbath rules to save, save them, save the animal. How much more valuable is a human life than an animal life? Why wouldn't it be right to show compassion to him? And all they did, it says, is they were completely silent. They wouldn't even answer him. They were so caught. And I like what it says here about Jesus at this point. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. He said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. Jesus is angry. By the way, this is the only time in the scriptures it explicitly says that Jesus was angry. <coughs> Now, was he angry uh, when he overturned the tables of the money changers at the beginning of his ministry and at the end of his ministry? Yes. But this is the only time that explicitly says Jesus was angry. And you know why he's angry? Because they are more concerned about their rituals and their rules than they are in compassion to a person that is in need. They've got it all backwards. People and care and compassion to them comes before keeping rituals and rules. But notice here, while Jesus is angry, you notice it says he's also grieved. He's angry at them, but he's also sad for them. It says grieved at the hardness of their heart. The word hard here is the same word used to describe the hardness of marble. That their hearts are so hard that they cannot see the need to have compassion on this man. And I love how Jesus ends this up. You can picture this. He's talking to the Pharisees on one side. He turns his head to the man and he says, stretch out your hand. That hand that was shriveled and rotten instantly is restored. Flesh restores to it. Color returns to it. It opens in front of their eyes like a flower. And the man, for the first time in years, begins moving his fingers back and forth. And it's full of strength and it's full of power. He's been healed. And what happens is Jesus does a miracle, a small miracle on the order of creation itself creating life where there was no life. 
I don't know about you, but if I was one of the Pharisees at this point, I think I would begin to rethink my objections to Jesus at this moment. I mean, I just saw this crippled hand revivified and restored in front of my face. What would you do? I'll tell you what the Pharisees did. In fact, we find this in the parallel account in Luke chapter 6. But they were filled with fury and disgust with one another what they might do to Jesus. That word fury, it means rage. Literally, psychotic levels of anger. Out of your mind craziness at Jesus. How dare he heal somebody on the Sabbath? You're not allowed to provide restorative care. Now, interestingly, it says this. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. That sounds like a little throwaway line. It's actually not. Who are the Herodians? They're not a religious party like the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They're like a Jewish religious party. Herodians are a political party. They are secular Jews committed to the prosperity and growth of Herod and his empire, committed to the growth of Greek and Roman godless culture in Jerusalem. The ultra-liberals and the ultra-conservatives, the Pharisees, have now joined forces for the elimination of Jesus. Herodians want to get rid of him because he's too popular. He's upsetting the system. People are not being drawn to Herod, they're being drawn to Jesus. The Pharisees want to get rid of him because simply he's not following their traditions, their man-made rules. Here we are in only chapter 3 of Mark's gospel, and already people have decided to do away with him. This will all come to a head on a hill called Golgotha, where he dies in our place for our sin. Now let me give you some of the applications from these two stories. Number one, Jesus has all authority. He even has authority over the Sabbath because he created it. That's the main thrust that Mark is trying to get across to us. You know, he had authority over demons. He had authority over disease, authority to forgive sin. He has authority even over the Sabbath because he's the one who created it. You can't get much higher authority than Jesus. Number two, we live our faith by displaying compassion toward those in need, not by flawless observation of religious practices. Again and again, we find... <laughs> Hungry disciples, it's okay. They should be able to eat some grain. Man with a withered hand, it's okay. You can heal on the Sabbath. Again and again, we as Christians, we often like to think we live our Christian life by making a whole bunch of lists of things we don't do. When the reality is we should be focusing on care, compassion, and mercy to those in need. Read the Gospels. Again and again, you'll hear Jesus saying, and he had compassion on the crowds. He wouldn't want to send them away 
hungry. So he fed the 5,000. Compassion. Number three, God gave us the Sabbath as a blessing to be enjoyed, not a burden to be dreaded. And lastly is this, Jesus is our Sabbath. He is our rest. In a moment, we're going to take communion together. And communion is the celebration that Jesus is our Sabbath. He's our rest. We don't have lists of rules of things that we must do to earn God's favor. We simply trust in what Jesus has done for us. We rest in what Jesus has done for us. And we are given God's favor. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that good? Now, as we take communion, if you are a Christian and you have trusted in Jesus Christ, we invite you to join us in celebrating the Lord's Supper with us. And we ask that when the elements are passed, that you would take and you would hold them, and we'll take them together after the elements have been distributed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your Son. Thank you that through your Son, we have Sabbath rest from our works. We don't have to earn your favor. We have been given your favor. Thank you that you have released us from any kinds of rituals and rules and lists that we have to keep. We just simply trust in your Son. And then we go and we do acts of goodness, kindness, mercy, and compassion towards those in need. That is your heart for your people. We ask this in Christ's name. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at ChristToOurCulture.com. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.